Well, in 1907, there was a Korean revival which caused many Korean Christians to link the country of Korea with the nation of Israel. Korea, they saw, was the chosen nation that had turned its back on God, but it could still be delivered if they repented of their sins and sought forgiveness. And despite the preachers and the revival calling Korea to do that, and many people did, despite all of that, Korea's plight actually worsened. And in 1910, or 1910, it became a Japanese colony. Now, the Korean Christians then had to shift their understanding of Korea a bit when that happened. And so now, many of them saw themselves as Israel in bondage to the Egyptians. In a 1920 issue of the Korean Mission Field, there is an article that even says that Korea's deliverance from the bondage of Egypt to the freedom of Canaan is one of the three mightiest revivals described in the Bible, which may be surprising to some of you. Um, Therefore, the list of the three greatest revivals Mentioned in the Bible, according to this article, is the incarnation of Christ, the day of Pentecost, and Korea's deliverance from Japan. Now, when Korea did become free of the Japanese, and with the growing communist zone in the north, many Korean Christians from the north fled to the south, about 35% of the Christians in the north fled to the south, and many of them were instrumental in planting and starting new churches in the south. In fact, uh, by 1950, 2,000 new Protestant churches had started in South Korea, and 90% of those were started by northerners who had fled to South Korea. Because of their ongoing fear of communism and the effects of communism, many of these former northern Christians who planted these churches gave their uncritical support to the military regime of the first president of South Korea. And as South Korea prospered, the churches increasingly equated the message of Jesus with the message of the government and with the ideologies of nationalism and even of capitalism. Uh, Their support of government and economics was regularly touted as the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Brian Stanley, who writes about all of this, says that they stood in these these Korean churches, they stood in danger of making Christianity syncretic with both a narrow form of Korean ethnicity and capitalism. The sophisticated programs, the slick business culture of their mega churches appealed to an upward mobility, but it also attracted adverse publicity when abuses started to happen, especially around a financial character. As these increasingly came to light, the churches grew larger and larger, and yet as they grew larger and larger, they increasingly associated Protestantism with the prosperity of government. These unhealthy compromises then led to unhealthy biblical interpretations of prophecy and Korean nationalism being one and the same. Now, 
when we tell these stories, when we hear these kinds of stories, and when we see the Koreans do this, we can stand back and see how unfounded this is and how unhealthy this is. We can do the same thing when we hear the Nigerians do it and when the Brazilians do it. But somehow, when American preachers do it about America, we buy their books and we send them our money. It's good to step back and to realize that almost all countries at times have gone through these very things that sometimes we hear the American preachers do. And there is a lot of unhealth in trying to associate a country and their politics and their economics with some kind of biblical prophecy and message. Well, Acts starts off with a head slapper of a question. After three years of Jesus teaching his disciples, Jesus was led away to be crucified. Only to surprise everyone three days later of popping out of the grave and walking around and saying, I'm alive again. And then when he did that, he spent the next 40 days teaching them even more. In fact, now in those 40 days, he taught them what everything prior to that meant. Why he had to die. What all this meant in regards to the fulfillment of prophecy. They had 40 days of, of teaching with the resurrected Jesus... And this is what Acts says. During those 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. See, the, this idea that these people back then were just kind of naive and easy believing uh, is just unfounded. Even in the scriptures, uh, when Jesus was appearing before them, he had to continually prove to them that he actually was alive because this is just not normal. And so he, in many ways, proved to them that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. So during this 40-day intensive seminar they had with Jesus, the primary theme was the kingdom of God. Luke, at the end, says the same thing, talking about the same time period. It says, Jesus said, and he's talking about Jesus during this 40 days after he rose. Jesus said, when I was with you before... I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's basically a summary of the Old Testament. Moses, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, everything there has been fulfilled in me. And then it says, Jesus opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all nations, beginning right here in Jerusalem. The, the message is that there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And then Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. Go and share this message. So that's Jesus' message. Uh, that's what Jesus intensely focused his message on for these 40 days. And he spoke about the kingdom. 
and he spoke about how it was fulfilled in him. And all the Old Testament, Moses' prophet law was, or, or, or Psalms was fulfilled in him. And that all of these things about Jesus dying and rising was, was actually there in the scripture. And that now that it has been fulfilled in him, they are to go out and proclaim this kingdom message. And then the head slapper question comes. You've been explicitly prepared for all of this. Your teacher has spent these 40 days with you. He knows this question is going to be on the final exam. It says that he's even opened your mind so that you could understand the scripture. And then after all of that, right before he ascends, the disciples say, Hey Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore your kingdom? Now, if ever there was a Homer Simpson dull moment in Jesus' life, this was the time. Of all the questions, could you imagine right before you're going to ascend, you're just like, ah, oh, really? People. Of this question, John Stott writes, their question must have filled Jesus with dismay. Were they still lacking in perception? John Calvin commented, there are so many errors in the question of these words. And yet, just like those disciples of old, 2,000 years later, we continue to ask this wrong question about Israel, or about America, or about Korea, or Nigeria, or wherever else. Ironically, we don't really ask it about Canada very much. I guess we always think we're too small or something to make much of a difference. But, but we keep asking this question. And then we have a publishing industry that supports these questions that Jesus outright here condemns with his answer to his own disciples. After they ask that question, Lord, is, is it now? Now that you're going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel? Jesus replies, the Father alone has authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. And therefore, why do we even write books on this? They're not for you to know. Instead, this is where Jesus directs our focus. Immediately after that, in Acts chapter 1, he says, but, it's not about times and dates and whose kingdom this and all that, but, Jesus says, instead, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, what your job is, is not to establish some kind of political kingdom and say it's my kingdom, or, or to write end time charts and, and decide people's orthodoxy based on whether or not they agree with it. He says, no, when the Spirit comes upon you, then you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, starting in Jerusalem, and then throughout Judea and Samaria, and then on to the ends of the earth. In fact, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, many Bible teachers see that as kind of a table of contents for the whole book of Acts. Uh, you are to preach about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What happens is then in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come first, and then this will happen. So Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. 
Acts 2 to 7, you see Jesus' followers witnessing in Jerusalem. And then Acts chapter 8, they go to Judah and Samaria. And then Acts chapter 9 on, they go to the ends of the earth. Ending up in Rome. And then the book of Acts sort of just ends dot, dot, dot. Because it continues on with church history. So you have there kind of a table of contents. Our mandate from Jesus is to be his witnesses. Be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then, after saying this, we read, He was taken up into a cloud while they were watching. That was Jesus' last commission to us. He was taken up in a cloud as they were watching, and they could no longer see him. And as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Now, seeing the disciples' response here, right after Jesus ascended into heaven, seeing how the disciples respond is why every single one of us needs to leave here today and hug a teacher. In fact, I'm going to do that right now because Alicia is right up here front. I'm going to hug you, Alicia, because I know what teachers go through. So here you go. Oh, you. Hug a teacher. <laughs> yes, students, uh, students can be frustrating. So, so just as the disciples kind of got it wrong, that, that head slapper question of Jesus, now are you going to establish the kingdom? Here the disciples seem to get it wrong again. This time they just get it wrong on the flip side. Right after, Jesus says, go to the ends of the earth. The disciples stare into heaven. And they just stare and stare and stare into heaven. And eventually two shiny guys have to come along and say, what are you doing? Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus' disciples make two mistakes in the first 11 verses. One of the things I love about the Bible is it doesn't make these characters um, larger than life. It, do, it, it, it shows them to be real humans that bundle things a lot. Uh, in the first 11 chapters, they make two mistakes. First, they make the mistake of wanting earthly political power. Somehow connecting Jesus' message with an earthly kingdom. And Jesus says, no, it's not about that. And then they flip, and the second mistake they make is they then want to escape into the mystical gaze of heaven. John Stott again makes an important observation here, which is important for us today as a church just as much as it had to be corrected in Acts chapter 1, because the rest of Acts is about the building of the church. And so Acts chapter 1 has to correct this right in the first chapter. It's not about a political earthly kingdom here with these kingdoms. And it's not about some mystical heavenly kingdom. Let's get that right in chapter 1. Or else everything else in the following chapters, you're going to be chasing the wrong thing. So John Stott says about these two mistakes, he says, The apostles committed two opposite errors. First, they were hoping for political power the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Second, they were gazing up into the sky, preoccupied with the heavenly Jesus. Both were false fantasies, Stott says. The first is the political error 
of trying to establish a utopia on earth. And the second is the error of pietism and dreaming of heavenly bliss. And so if Jesus' message is not a message about physical political takeovers, and if his, not, and if his message is also not a message of mystical heavenly bliss, what was his message? What was his message that we were to take to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? That's probably why this needed to be established in the first chapter. Um, there's no reason to, to start running around to all these different places if we have the message wrong. So what is that message? Well, I believe that Jesus' ascension, which happens right after that, has the key elements to remind us of what that message is. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does the ascension mean? And does that help us understand his message? Now, the ascension happened 40 days after Jesus' resurrection on Easter. So, for 2019, if you're calculating things or if you want to celebrate something this week, uh, the the, uh, ascension would happen this Thursday, May 30th. Uh, on 2019, that's 40 days from Easter. And then that's why, that why um, 10 days after May 30th, we will be gathered together on a Sunday morning and it will be Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus' ascension is a core Christian belief. It's not one of those options. It's right there in our earliest creed. The Apostles' Creed, when we confess it, We say that we believe that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and from there he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So if we confess that, what do we mean by that when we say it? If Jesus didn't come to build a this-worldly political kingdom and if Jesus didn't come to build a spirit-world heavenly kingdom... What did he come to do? So let's look at this stanza in the Apostles' Creed, sort of in three sections, as we try to understand the ascension and what it means. The first is that we affirm, like it says right there in Acts, that Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, one of the things we have to be very careful of as Christians here is to understand how language is being used in the Bible we must be careful not to interpret ascending with a crude literalism. Now, yes, Jesus really did lift up into the sky before the disciples' eyes. They really did see that. He really did go up in the sky and then disappear. But Jesus wasn't traveling to heaven as if by building a good enough spaceship, we could fly there too. In fact... Heaven is not even a particular place that Jesus went to. Because scripture elsewhere, like in Ephesians 4, 10, says this. Jesus ascended higher than all the heavens. So that he might fill the entire universe with himself. So what does it mean for Jesus to ascend to heaven when Ephesians, Paul says, Jesus actually ascended higher than all the heavens and he did so that he could fill the entire universe with himself. So we have to understand that biblical language is often symbolic. 
in trying to communicate a message, not speaking of a literal space travel. The ascension is not where Jesus traveled to, since he ascended higher than all the heavens and fills the entire universe with himself, but the ascension is a display of Jesus' authority and a display of what he has accomplished. Jesus' ascension signified the end of his earthly ministry. By ascending, he was saying that my earthly ministry is completed. I accomplished, I completed everything I came to do. There was nothing that was left unaccomplished. I didn't fail at any part of my ministry. And now I'm returning to my heavenly glory, and I will now send the Holy Spirit among you to carry on the work that I completed. This may also be hinted at by the two white guys that appeared at Jesus' ascension. Now, although these two guys are are usually thought of to be angels, the text says that they were men. Now, sometimes angels are referred to as men. But what's interesting is that these two guys actually bear a striking resemblance to Moses and Elijah when Jesus was at the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, this is what we read there. As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see. And listen now to what they were talking to Jesus about at the transfiguration. It says, and they were speaking to Jesus about his exodus from the world, which was about to be filled in Jerusalem. So with Jesus in dazzling white, two men, glorious to see, appear with Jesus and at his transfiguration. And now at his ascension, as these disciples are staring into the heaven, all of a sudden two shining, glorious men appear there before uh, the disciples, and they say that this, why are you still staring into heaven? Because he has now been taken. And when we read about them in the transfiguration, they were speaking to, to Jesus about his exodus from the world. And here the, Jesus is exiting from the world. So it would make sense that these two guys would be the same, particularly when we understand what Moses and Elijah represent. See, Moses represents the law. Elijah, for the Jews, always represented the prophets. In many ways, these two men, that's why they were there at the transfiguration, they were representing that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And now here at the ascension, possibly Moses and Elijah are there as well. Jesus' ascension is saying, I have finished my work. And possibly Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, are there as a testimony saying, yes, it is finished. He has accomplished what he came to accomplish. The Old Testament has been fulfilled. Now your job is not to stare into heaven. Your job is to go tell the world. Go tell the world. The Savior's come. The law and the prophets have been fulfilled. Now the Holy Spirit is coming to empower you to share this message. So with this law and prophet being completed in Jesus' ministry, we say that we believe that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
because the law and the prophets have been fulfilled in Jesus, Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father. Well, what does that mean? Again, we must remember the language is symbolic. Since God is actually a spirit, God is everywhere at once, and he has no hands. So if God is everywhere at once, in all places, at all times, and he has no hands, God doesn't have a right side, and he doesn't have a left side. God doesn't sit on a chair called a throne. He encapsulates the entire universe is in him. And so we have to understand that this language, once again, is symbolic. To speak of a literal throne with God having a literal right side and a literal left side is for Christians to fall into paganism and to start thinking of God like Zeus. The Bible frequently uses pictures to tell us the truth about God. God's a rock. Well, when the Bible says that God's a rock, it means that he is strong, he is dependable, unmovable. It doesn't mean that God is a literal mountain of hardened dirt. If we believe that about God, then we fall into the danger of pantheism, where God is his creation. It's very important to understand that the Bible uses picture language. God has wings. God's like a mother hen. God's all of these different pictures. God sits on a throne. Their picture language is to tell us attributes about God. Not literalness about God. Whenever it becomes literal, it, becomes, it reduces God. Already 800 years ago, the great theologian Thomas Aquinas, writing about the ascension, says this. It is not to be taken in a, the literal sense, but figuratively, that Christ is at the right hand of God. Inasmuch as Christ is God. He is said to sit at the right hand of the Father. That is, he sits in equality with the Father. That's what the language means, Thomas Aquinas said 800 years ago. We, he, it, that Christ shares the equality with the Father. See, in ancient culture, and I'm sorry to, to all left-handed people here, my son being one of them. In ancient culture, the right hand was seen as the hand of authority, the hand of strength. A king would hold his scepter in his right hand. It shows his authority. It represents his authority. For Jesus to be at the right hand of the Father is in some ways a picture of Jesus being like the scepter of the Father. Jesus shares the authority of the Father. He represents the Father's authority. The same authority that the Father has, Jesus has. Jesus is the right hand of God. Jesus is the strength of God. Is the authority of God. In more imagery, along the same line, Hebrews 1.13 has God the Father saying to Jesus, Sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Now once again... Jesus and the Father are not sitting on literal thrones with God having made a coffee table out of Jesus' enemies so that Jesus can put his feet on top of them. It's language that portrays a theological truth. And that is, again, in ancient culture, when a king would conquer an enemy, what they would do is they would drag their enemy, if they could capture the king, 
all the better. They would drag that king in front of all of their people. They would throw the king on the ground and they would put their foot on the king's neck like this. They have made the enemy basically saying, you are completely subservient to me. I stomp on your neck. You're a footstool to me. That's the imagery. And what it's saying here too is that Jesus, sit at my right hand. Your enemies have been conquered. The ascension reminds us that Jesus' work has been fulfilled. He's fulfilled the Old Testament law and the prophets, and in fulfilling it, he has conquered sin, and he has conquered death, and he has conquered Satan. They are under his authority. That's why Romans also says the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. We also believe that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Acts says, Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, just as they saw him go, and someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. That just as they really did see him leave, Jesus really will come back again. Timothy says, Or Paul says to Timothy, Christ Jesus will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes back again to set up his kingdom. Now most of us don't like the idea of a judge. Especially the idea of God as a judge. We even more dislike the idea of Jesus as a judge. Jesus, meek and mild, I mean we love that. That Jesus the suffering servant, we're good with that. Jesus the precious moment. How cute is that? Uh, Even Jesus back from the dead, why not? That's great too. But Jesus coming as judge, that's so judgmental of him. But all of us, we need to recognize, are under judgment. All of us are under judgment. It is Christ who has paved the way for us by what he accomplished in his earthly ministry To be free from that judgment. See, because of Jesus' death and his resurrection and the things that he did and the fulfillment of the Old Testament, for those of us who have bowed the knee to Jesus, he comes not only as our judge, but he comes as our lawyer as well. And you need Jesus as your lawyer who will advocate on your behalf. Who will stand in the gap for you. Acknowledging that the debt of your sin has been paid by him and that you are forgiven and therefore you are able to enter into the kingdom with him. Without acknowledging that, without accepting that, without allowing Jesus to become that for you, all Jesus will be for you when he comes back again is judge. And if all Jesus is when he comes back for you is judge, you're condemned. there's, There's no way out of it. You, you could try as much as you want to advocate on your behalf or try to hire another lawyer. It's not going to work. You're under condemnation. But those who seek forgiveness in Christ are able to enter into his new kingdom. See, Christ did not come to establish his kingdom alongside of our political regimes. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about his kingdom. The church runs into danger whenever it aligns God's chosen people with a political regime or a country or an empire or a people. We have too many examples of this 
And they always end up in corruption and persecution, military oppression, and then unfortunately get the church aligned with some of the most atrocious things in history. Christ also did not come to establish God's kingdom in some distant heavenly spiritual realm, in some nirvana or some kind of a, a, a Gnostic or mystical or Hindu type of escapism. And the church runs into danger whenever it becomes escapist, spiritually selfish and unconcerned about things like poverty and art and education and health care. And its only concern is, is about trying to get people's disembodied souls into a spiritual realm. Both of these things are not biblical. They're not Jesus' message. Instead, Jesus' ascension shows us that Jesus accomplished what he came to do. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures. That he has brought about the forgiveness of sins and the defeat of his and our enemies in sin, in self, and Satan. And that Jesus rules over all things alongside of his Father. That Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to carry on bringing the good news of what he has accomplished to fulfillment. And that just as Jesus went away, Jesus is coming back again. The whole message is not Jesus went away and we are just going to go away with him one day too, but that Jesus is coming back again. Why? Because when Jesus comes back again, then he will make all things right. And he will establish his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth, which he is calling all people to join him in. And in the new kingdom, in the new heavens and the new earth, sin and death and tears and sorrow and all those things will be gone forever. That is what Jesus' ascension and his return are all about. And it's that message that he has called us to say, go and share. Go and tell everyone. So that the two shiny men Maybe Moses and Elijah are saying to each and every one of us, why are you still standing here staring into heaven? Remember what Jesus said. You are to go out to the ends of the earth and be his witnesses, telling people everywhere that they can have their sins forgiven. You are to tell people everywhere that they can join God's kingdom movement of the redemption of all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that it's going to extend throughout the entire cosmos one day to the very ends of the earth. It is the kingdom of God that will be brought to its fullness when Jesus comes back again just as he went away. Don't you want to be part of that? That is the message we are to take and to live to the ends of the earth. And I guess eventually if we go to Mars and places like that, we'll take it to the ends of the cosmos too. Jesus is coming back again. He's finished the work that he came to do. Sins have been forgiven. Death has been defeated. And he is going to restore and fix all things one day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have done. For us and for your creation. That you didn't leave it when it went against you. 
but as a loving creator, you set things back to right. We pray, God, that we can be your ambassadors of this message and that we can begin to live out what it looks like in microcosm to be rightly ordered people. We await and anticipate the day when you come, Lord, and you make everything right just as you fulfilled in your cross and resurrection.